Welcome to the Energy Policy Now podcast from the Kleinman Center for Energy Policy at the University of Pennsylvania. I'm Andy Stone. The focus of today's podcast is a technology that could very well play a critical role in the global effort to minimize the impact of climate change. Yet this technology remains something of a taboo, and if that's too strong a word, I'll simply point out that despite the promise it may hold, it has yet to make its way into mainstream dialogue among policymakers or champions of green industry here in the United States or pretty much anywhere else. There is no grand national debate into the merits of solar geoengineering, which is a process to artificially cool the Earth by reflecting sunlight back into space. The technology sounds fanciful, the stuff of science fiction. Yet earlier this year, the National Academies of Sciences issued an urgent request to Washington to begin a federal research program into geoengineering. That request has, so far, fallen on deaf ears. Today's guest is someone who believes solar geoengineering is inevitable, despite the relative lack of attention the technology has attracted to date. In a recently published book, the climate economist Gernot Wagner makes the case for this inevitability. Yet he also presents a compelling argument for why much more research into geoengineering's risks must be completed if it is to be put into practice. In today's episode, he'll explore why solar geoengineering is fundamentally different from other strategies that address climate change, and why research programs into the technology must be tightly governed. We'll also talk about why the path to solar geoengineering's implementation, if it is indeed inevitable, is likely to stoke fierce policy debate and quite possibly geopolitical tensions. Gernot Wagner is an economist at New York University and author of the recently published book, Geoengineering, The Gamble. He is also a co-author of Climate Shock, which was chosen by the Financial Times as a best book in economics in 2015. Gernot, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Andy. Great to be here. The title of your new book is Geoengineering, but as you make clear to readers, the book is really about something more specific which is solar geoengineering. And distinction is important, as you point out in the first few pages of the book. Why did you misname, or maybe more accurately, <laughs> incompletely name the book? <laughs> uh, so uh, you are right. Geoengineering itself is a misnomer for the more specific thing that most of the book is about. But to be clear, it's important to talk about the full slew of technologies here. And uh, they include, frankly, two very different things. One is carbon removal, literally sucking CO2 out of thin air. That sounds expensive energetically and um, money-wise, and it is. That's one set of technologies. Some call that carbon geoengineering, some also I included, apparently, in this, under the title, um, uh, subsume it under the term geoengineering. But it is really very, very different from this other set, solar geoengineering, which in many ways has the exact opposite properties, um, where carbon removal is expensive, relatively slow, and in some sense, a real solution. It addresses the root cause. Too much CO2 in the atmosphere. Solar geoengineering does neither of these. So it's, it's fast, it's cheap, and it is highly imperfect. So just to point out, you have worked on solar geoengineering with David Keith, who's a, a Harvard physicist who is, I guess, doing some of the leading research into the technology. Can you tell us a little bit about your background uh, with that program? David and I uh, co-founded the program. So you know, I, I joined him. He was already there. I joined him from Environmental Defense Fund, EDF, to start a research program, um, Harvard's Solar Geoengineering Research Program, um, SGRP, for those in the know. <laughs> um, it's been around now for about five years. It is the first of its kind, uh, sort of, um, relatively sizable, but of course host, housed within one institution, uh, research program that um, looks at this set of technologies 
in a um, holistic way, right? It's not just the physicists, the chemists, the natural scientists, um, I economists, um, and of course, many, many other social scientists um, uh, are um, involved, still are involved, I'm no longer um, involved in this research program, um, looking at this set of technologies. So, you know, from, from all different angles. Um, and in many ways, of course, you know, I would say this as a social scientist, but in many ways, it's not really the technology itself, the engineering, the, the, the natural science as important as it is to do more research on that front. Um, that in many ways addresses some of the most fundamental questions here, right? Because, uh, this is, all about, or the conversation about it is all about the, um, the politics, the policy, um, the ethics, the philosophy of it. Should we be even talking about this technology? Can you give us the quick 101 version of really what is solar geoengineering? It is an attempt, a large scale attempt to alter the Earth's albedo. It's, uh, brightness, its reflectivity, um, to essentially reflect more solar energy back into space. The principle is pretty much the same as why you and I were white between uh, Memorial and Labor Day and why winter jackets are black. Right? White reflects, cools what is underneath, black attracts um, and warms what is underneath. Um, so, you know, painting roofs white is using this same idea. Now, of course, it's using it in a very innocuous way, right? It it affects the apartment immediately underneath the roof. It does not affect the global climate. Solar geoengineering, the most prominent solar geoengineering um, technology, is about altering the global albedo albedo modification on a global scale, for example, through tiny reflective particles, aerosols, in the lower stratosphere. So those would be injected into the stratosphere. I understand that sulfur dioxide is the is the material that would be used to do this. It's light. It would reflect the light back it, in space. It, sulfur dioxide is, uh, is the sort of the best studied one. Why? Because volcanoes have been doing this forever. So when Mount Pinatubo erupts in the Philippines in 1991, global average temperatures um, are about half a degree centigrade, almost a degree Fahrenheit, cooler in 1992. <laughs> Ironically, right around the time of the Rio Earth Summit, uh, temperatures were about half a degree cooler, which at that time was uh, total global average warming due to us Humanity emitting CO2 was essentially masked by this volcanic eruption. Those sulfates fall out of the stratosphere after 12, 18 months or so. Uh, so by 1993, temperatures were back up. And of course, they've been increasing ever since. Solar engineering really is at this point kind of a footnote in terms of attention amongst climate solutions. We don't hear much about it or nearly as much about it as we might hear, say, about, uh, you know, a carbon tax, which always seems to be in the news. So why did you choose to write this book on solar geoengineering right now? What's, what's the driver for it? If, again, we're not hearing a whole lot about it in public dialogue. So I would say two things. So one, it is good that we don't hear quite as much about solar geoengineering as about, uh, you know, reducing CO2 emissions in the first place. Um, that's good. We have to cut CO2 emissions. There is just no way around it. And the last thing we would want to have happen is that talking about solar geoengineering detracts from the need to cut CO2 emissions. Um, that phenomenon comes under the term moral hazard. It is real. It is a problem, right? And frankly, the Newt Gingrich op-ed has already been written that essentially said um, almost verbatim, um, ha, found solution to climate change, told you, don't need to cut CO2 emissions after all. Right? He wrote that about, you know, over 10 years ago at the height of the Obama era climate policy push for a national cap and trade system, emissions trading at the time. And of course, that's the wrong thing to deduce from talking about solar geoengineering. It is not, it cannot be 
a replacement for cutting CO2 emissions. So in some sense, um, you know, this is sort of the apology tour, right? It's not the book tour. Um, so uh, sorry, no, uh, don't draw too <laughs> much attention um, to solar geoengineering uh, because frankly, we have to cut CO2 emissions. Now, that said, yes, we should be talking we should be researching. We should be researching solar geoengineering, frankly, quite a bit more than we currently do, right? Not sort of leave it up to philanthropic money, private donors, uh, a fanciful university doing its own program. But yes, at the, at the national, at the federal level, right? The National Science Foundation, the National Academies. And of course, you know, that is happening. That's increasingly happening. But frankly, there should be a lot more of that. Um, and I should add immediately um, around this moral hazard question right, of detracting from the need to cut CO2 emissions. Frankly, we might also find the exact opposite. We do sometimes see the exact opposite, that talking about solar geoengineering in the right way, right? So if not describing it as, ha, found solution, right? But in the right way of, look, there is this set of technologies it's not a question of if, it's when. And it's not the first best thing to do here. It really isn't. We shouldn't be starting with solar geoengineering. Um, so maybe talking about solar geoengineering in the right way actually pushes us to cut CO2 emissions more, right? The, right, the exact inverse of this moral hazard phenomenon. And frankly, we see some of this. We, we see it with conversations about adaptation. Things are so bad already, we already have to adapt to what's in store, which ought to push us to want to cut CO2 emissions even more so. And the same with solar geoengineering. So I want to dive into a little bit more deeply why this is inevitable. Okay, you've talked about it being cheap. I think you mentioned the fact that the technology is relatively simple it's inevitable, but as you point out in the book, you're not really necessarily so happy about that fact. It's interesting that you spent so much time actually researching it. Tell us a little bit more about why you believe this is, if not inevitable, quite likely inevitable. Solar engineering has in many ways the exact inverse properties of mitigation, of cutting CO2 emissions in the first place. Um, what do I mean by that? Uh, so us economists talk about sort of this global climate problem often as a free rider problem, right? So it's in nobody's immediate self-interest to be cutting CO2 emissions. Um, and if we do so, we aren't really solving the global problem here, right? There's 8 billion of us, there's 200 countries and so on, right? So one of us going it alone isn't going to solve it. Now, um, frankly, there's often, um, you know, we often make too much of this fact as economists uh, in the sense that right, it is increasingly no longer true that it's not in your self-interest, right? So when the International Energy Agency declares solar photovoltaic, solar PV to be the cheapest form of electricity in history... Right. You know, they're onto something, right? <laughs> Solar PV is cheap, right? Heat pumps are good. Induction stoves are better than gas stoves. Insulating your home is good, not just for the climate, but also for you living inside your home, right? Cuts down on your own energy bills. Um, and so on and so forth, right? There are lots of things we should be doing, could be doing, and that are increasingly, you know, in the money, right? That are sort of increasingly the sort of things that are, worth it to do almost regardless of how other people might react, right? And electric vehicle is fundamentally a better product than one with an internal combustion engine, right? So yes, you should be making that switch. That said, right, on a, on a global level, right, there's something to this free rider phenomenon. Um, solar geoengineering has in many ways the exact opposite property free driver, if you will. It is so cheap, relatively speaking. It is so fast. And of course, it is also imperfect. But it's the cheap and the fast that leads you to the opposite conclusion, that it's not a question of motivating more people 
to cut emissions more. No, it's the exact opposite, right? It's stopping people from doing too much, too soon, stupidly. And that's what, you know, that's what makes it interesting from an academic perspective, from a policy perspective. And yes, that leads to this conclusion, but not if, but when. Well, so it sounds to me like the technology is fundamentally pretty much there, but what we would need would be these specially designed airplanes that could fly particularly high, be large enough to hold enough of whatever the the materials that would be spread into the stratosphere. And I, I would imagine that that's at least a decade out. So on scale, the earliest this could happen, assuming everybody would get on board, which is a different question, which again, we'll talk about. We're not seeing this for another decade, at least at scale. Is that, is that about right? Let's put an S at the end of that word, right? Decades, okay. right? So, I mean, okay, yes, right? If if we were to, right, um, somebody somewhere, and I guess that matters too, right? Uh, it's, it, it's the free driver property here also very much goes toward, no, we don't need a universal global agreement to get started, right? Imagine right, the national security advisor to the prime minister, the president, of a country particularly hard hit by yet another 100-year storm hitting the country within you know, uh, 12 months, 14 months or so, and uh, yet another one of these extreme climatic events, um, tens of thousands of people, millions of people right, out of a job, lives, livelihoods lost, um, national catastrophe, and yes, that national government let's say the Philippines, Indonesia, a country like that, well, the national security advisor would be remiss not to mention the possibility. That doesn't mean um, that anyone is launching anything tomorrow or next year or maybe even within a decade, but an all-out research effort, an all-out mobilization effort, even by just that one country, might well put us on a timescale that's, you know, let's say 10, 15, 20 years out. Um, is that the rational thing to do, the best thing to do from a global perspective? Maybe, probably not. Um, and that's the problem. Now we are back to this free driver phenomenon. There's not 8 billion free drivers around here, but yeah, there might be a few dozen countries who fall into this category. In March of this year, the National Academies of Sciences released a report, and the title of that report is a, a bit of a mouthful, but I'll say it right here. It's Reflecting Sunlight, Recommendations for Solar Geoengineering Research and Research Governance. And there's a, a brief passage from that report, a highlight that I just wanted to read here, and that, that is the following. It says, the U.S. federal government should establish, in coordination with other countries, a transdisciplinary solar geoengineering research program. This program should be a minor part of the overall U.S. research program related to responding to climate change, end quote. Now, the main theme of your book, or a main theme, is that we need to understand the risks of solar geoengineering, and that seems to be that is what the uh, National Academies are, are looking to understand more about. Can you tell us what are the big questions that need to be answered? And I also just want to make a footnote in that uh, passage from the uh, National Academies. It's very much one foot in and one foot out. Do it, but it's going to be a small program. So again, what are the yeah. questions that need to be answered? Actually, so on, quickly on this National Academies uh, report. So first of all, it's not the first time the National Academies have talked about Solar geoengineering, it sort of began in the, in the, in the 90s even, but frankly, you know, very little has happened, um, in the, you know, the first couple decades or so, and in some sense, appropriately so. And then in 2015, so, uh, six years ago by now, the National Academies came out with the first comprehensive report, essentially saying, Right. Let's take this more seriously than we are. And then, yes, earlier this year, um, was this report saying, we should be, um, you know, researching this technology um, doesn't mean we should detract from other uh, priorities, other climate priorities. And just to give you a sense of the order of magnitude, um, nationwide, I mean, it depends who is counting, but federal research spending on climate overall is somewhere order of magnitude 
$3 billion, right? Okay, so satellites are part of this, right? Not all of them, but, you know, weather satellites and so on um, are part of this, right? They cost quite a bit of money. Um, but still, um, that sort of order of magnitude. The research program on solar geoengineering that the National Academies are talking about here, sort of order of magnitude, $10, 15000000 million a year. All right, so a lot smaller. Now, that's 10, 15 million more than are currently being spent on solar engineering, and that's important. Um, but still, right, just to get a sense. And frankly, those 15 million, right, in many ways shouldn't come out of the $3 billion. It, they should be in addition, right? Not that that really matters because the order of, orders of magnitude are so different. Okay, what should that research be? Well, the operative word here from the National Academies report is this transdisciplinary, right? It is not just about um, the physics, the chemistry, atmospheric chemistry. That's important too. It really is. There is lots more work that needs to be done to understand, for example, stratospheric chemistry and the interaction of any solar geoengineering intervention and stratospheric ozone. Right. Um, one of the most successful global, um, efforts to address an environmental problem was the 1989 Montreal Protocol, um, to attempt to do something about the ozone hole over the Antarctic. Right. And, and we are, in fact, well on the way to, uh, stratospheric ozone recovery to, to, to plug this hole, <laughs> to fix the, the, the ozone hole. Um, it would be, Rather bad if solar geoengineering were to reopen that um, ozone hole. If there were some interactions here that we don't yet know about um, that pose particular risks. Um, so it turns out we do know quite a bit already. And yes, it turns out there are trade-offs. Um, they are not quite as stark as any kind of solar geoengineering intervention would immediately reopen the ozone hole, but it would slow the recovery. Um, that's an important trade-off. Um, there's lots of additional research um, necessary on this question, and especially there's research necessary on the question of, okay, well, we know that if we send uh, sulfur dioxide into the stratosphere, um, we have this negative trade-off with stratospheric ozone, sulfur dioxide happens to be an acid. What about using a base? What about trying the opposite? What about trying an intervention that might actually help stratospheric ozone? And you know, there's sort of uh, hundreds of papers on stratospheric aerosols using sulfur dioxide. There are two or three, sort of a handful of papers on uh, calcium carbonate, limestone. Um, that's a base. And yes, um, in a climate model, that was the very first paper. Um, uh, it looks like it might be possible to attempt solar geoengineering using calcium, uh, uh, carbonate, limestone, and actually have a positive effect on, uh, stratospheric. Also, now a subsequent lab experiment put a big asterisk to that, um, to that uh, very preliminary conclusion. But that's sort of the point, right? That's just a, an example of the kind of research that is necessary, um, before anyone pulls any trigger anywhere on this, on, on this question. And then, right? And that's just a, that's the natural, uh, scientific side. And yes, then there are lots and lots of questions around, um, social science, um, policy, policy formulation, moral hazard, this interaction of um, mere talk of solar geoengineering, solar geoengineering research, and that interaction with cutting CO2 emissions in the first place. I want to stay on this point for too long, but you, you made an interesting kind of a footnote in your book where you said some research shows that actually if you would go for, or suggests, excuse me, that if we were to move forward with solar geoengineering, people might actually take more action to mitigate 
rather than less. So, you know, we have this fear of the moral hazard. And again, to focus what that is, that is, if we use solar geoengineering to turn down the global temperature, hey, we can take it easy and not worry about mitigating. That's this moral hazard. But you, 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 you mentioned some research that shows that just the opposite might happen. Uh, yes, right. So, and actually, the so the the researcher here, the lead researcher here, Christina Merck, a, a German uh, social scientist. Um, full disclosure, she's a co-author by now too. But this was very much her own paper five or so years ago. Um, she put six hundred Germans in a lab, or actually, in um, online research in this case. But um, so. Um, you create three groups, right? 200 each. And, um, you present, uh, to one of these groups. Okay. This is what climate change is, right? Are you now willing to offset your emissions, right? Here is some of, you know, would you use some of your own money, um, to offset your emissions? Um, the second group was told that climate change is, you know, really bad, right? Sort of, they were told more about climate change. Um, and then the third group were told about solar geoengineering and the moral hazard finding would be that those who were told about solar geoengineering would then say, oh, <laughs> problem solved, don't need to offset my emissions, don't need to do anything to cut CO2 emissions, right? Um, turns out she found the opposite. Those who were told about solar geoengineering were more likely to offset more of their own emissions with their own money. Right, their own euros. In this and is that because now um, climate change was real? So they, because solar engineering was necessary, so they got scared. Kind of right. So okay. So as so often the case, and this is actually my follow-on work with her now, uh, right, trying to figure out what's actually going on through right through people's minds. Um, but uh, yeah, one hypothesis is um, when right when serious people. Talk about what? Solar engineering? This sounds pretty scary, right? Maybe there is something to this climate problem after all, right? You sort of, you know, the frying pan effect, right? You get whacked over the head with this, right? Oh my God, wake up call. Let's finally cut emissions. And frankly, we see that in other, we see that with adaptation. So, um, actually, there's a, there's a historic analog here. So in the, in the 1990s, um, environmental groups, uh, you know, Al Gore is vice president. I was on the record saying, let's not talk about adaptation because it detracts from the need to cut emissions in the first place, right? Let's solve this thing first, right? Let's get Kyoto done, right? 1997, that sort of thing, right? Um, now, okay, fast forward 10 years or so, early 2000s. And of course, environmental groups started talking about adaptation because frankly, you know, we all realized that talking about adaptation actually draws more attention to the need to cut CO2 emissions, right? Because when you talk about, oh my God, right, this is so bad. We need to invest in resiliency efforts and adapting to the sea level rise that's already happening and fortifying our infrastructure and so on. And all of that comes with massive costs, which it does. Well, that shows how important it is to address the underlying problem. Okay, well, fast forward 20 or so years. Um, and now we are in this in a very similar situation um, with uh, solar geoengineering. Now, I'm not saying that solar engineering should go the way of adaptation, right? Sort of it becomes, you know, sort of the commonly accepted thing 10 years from now. Not at all. Um, but this inverse moral hazard, mere conversation, you and I now talking about solar geoengineering leading us to cut CO2 emissions more, wanting to cut CO2 emissions more, this inverse moral hazard is apparently very much real. And of course, the whole point, right? The, the best way to address moral hazard is to invoke its inverse, right? It's not try to try to minimize moral hazard, but to, to, to turn it the other way, right? To basically say, okay, you think this lets you off the hook cutting CO2 emissions? Guess what? No, it means we need to cut it even more. Mm -hmm. You know, I want to jump uh, forward with this issue of governance that the National Academies pointed out. And also tie into what you just mentioned about solar geoengineering becoming at some point the commonly accepted thing. Now, governance is, is key, the National Academies points out. And one reason is that governance optimally will help avoid the inevitability, if that is warranted, by avoiding a slippery slope whereby research 
and lots of investments into this technology leads to solar engineering being implemented pretty much through inertia and momentum. And the National Academy report says that research needs what they call an off-ramp to make sure that we aren't destined to go down that path of inevitability, again, if it's warranted. Can you tell us about a little bit more about this importance of the slippery slope, the the off-ramp, and and, 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 and what what that really means? Here's sort of the the first... Uh, thought that comes to place uh, come, come, comes to mind when when you know when anyone talks about solar engineering right no why are we why do I study it right why why do many scientists natural and social study this phenomenon in the first place well for many of us um, it was in fact this realization look climate change is so bad it is it's much worse than anyone had previously thought, right? In sort of in a broad uh, sense. The more we know, the worse it seems. Um, unmitigated climate change. Um, and meanwhile, our pace of action just isn't keeping pace, right? So we are just not solving the problem, right? Okay. Um, Solar engineering does seem, meanwhile, to do a lot of good, potential good, right? Sort of the net Benefits are potentially large. Um, that's sort of the starting point, which is another way of saying that no, this research, including the off ramp of right, moving away from inevitability, is not just about let's make sure to squash this technology in its infancy. Right? There is a lot about yes, let's make sure we do research the risks. Let's make sure we know what we are getting ourselves into. Absolutely. But frankly, for many of us, and I included, this is not just about let's figure out all the risks here to then make sure to intelligently talk about why never to do this ever again. Yes, there are risks. There are uncertainties. But the starting point is that, yes, there are also potentially large, sizable orders of magnitude, net benefits. Okay, so it's not just about the risks. That said, the ultimate criteria in many ways isn't this benefit-cost analysis, isn't looking at the net benefits. It's about risks versus risks. It's about risks of unmitigated climate change, and they are large. They are there. They are potentially much larger than most of us think. Um, And the risks of solar geoengineering. And they are too, right? They are clearly there. They're clearly risks. Um, so it's about um, errors of omission versus errors of commission, to use a fanciful philosophical um, description here. It's basically about looking at the risks on both sides. Okay, now, if and when we do that, and yes, we should be studying this topic much more than we currently are, um, we need to be able to have this sort of off-ramp the National Academies described there in their report um, that talks about, uh, no, not just, right, we are not just on uh, uh, researching this because we are inevitably slipping, sliding toward it anyway. There's nothing much to do, so might as well research it to not go into this uninformed. Yes, there is something to that description, right, this free driver effect, but some of this research very much ought to focus on what to do to avoid sliding toward this inevitability. I want to jump in on that because there's a really poignant point you make in the book just on this issue about the off-ramp and the slippery slope. And in the book, you say that research, and this is a, a getting into the policy of this, you say that research should really not be done under the auspices of the government or performed by the government you actually say the research should be done in universities, and you're explicit about that. And if it's ever implemented, then the implementation should be as the result of elected officials making that decision. So it sounds like you're thinking that 
there's a danger of the slippery slope if the government or something like that would get involved with that. Tell us a little bit more about that. Uh, uh, okay, so uh, you know, define government, right? Uh, so, so ideally, right? Um, this is a globally, not the CIA doing it. Uh, so exactly, right? So there, there's certainly a lot to that, right? So let's not have this be a military operation, right? Let's start with that, right? That's pretty clear. Um, at the same time, right, there is sort of this, you know, this, this ideal, right, you know, global democracy, right, we all get together and vote, right, this is sort of this, you know, fanciful, hyper-rational world, right, let's sort of, you know, you know, Jacinda Ardern, right, who's doing a good job in New Zealand, right, she gets promoted to world president, right, that's how the world works kind of thing, right, and then we do the most rational thing possible on a global level, right, okay, look, that's not how the world works. Right. We don't do the most rational thing. We wouldn't be talking about climate change if we had, right? If, if we had done this all along, right? Um, so we in a, we in a world where this best rational approach is just not an option very often, right? Like we don't do the first best. We don't do what the science tells us, right? Uh, for the most part, sadly, right? Okay. So. Now we need to, you know, we need to roll with the punches. Okay. So what does that mean? What does it mean to design a research program, uh, in light of that, you know, that real world, right? <laughs> that we live in. Uh, okay. Well, one is, okay. On the one hand, yeah, you want to create these, uh, you know, th th these, these walls, right? You want to make sure that it is not the military calling the shots. It's not, especially, you know, military in an undemocratic, uh, country, right? Calling, uh, the shots, uh, um, and then sort of, uh, confronting the world and saying, Oh, look, guys, we are doing this, right? Uh, not much you can do. Uh, covert operation style. Um, at the same time, you certainly also don't want the scientists. Right. The, the, you know, it doesn't matter in where they work, whether the employee of the government or at private institutions, at universities, public or private, doesn't really matter. Um, you certainly don't want the science, the scientists, uh, to be calling the shots, right? The, the decision of whether or not to deploy and in which form, um, to deploy, um, is very much a public decision ought to be a decision um, that you know, the public writ large makes. Okay, what does that mean practically in a representative democracy? Elected leaders. If there were to be a, a proper uh, policy process led by the current White House that comes up with, oh, yes, we should be researching this topic to the tune of 10, 15 million dollars a year, let's say, and the U.S. Global Change Research Program, USGCRP, um, the, the, the government agency coordinating, um, so these three billion or so dollars worth of, uh, federal climate research, right? If that program then also were to add a 10, 15 million dollars a year, um, solar geoengineering research program. Uh, yeah, that's a very different world, right? <laughs> uh, and in that case, it is the representative, uh, the, the elected representatives, right? The, the government, um, deciding on our behalf in a, you know, more or less democratic, uh, fashion, uh, democratically elected representatives in a semi-rational policy, uh, making process, um, to come up with this conclusion and say, yeah, let's do this research on the one hand. And then, of course, right, uh, much more so than the research question, any sort of deployment decision, right? Dozens of years down the line, of course, must be because of a public conversation, because of a democratic process, not because some scientist somewhere decided it's a good idea. This is gets really interesting. And here I think we're going to dive deep potentially into some of the geopolitical considerations here. But, you know, we've been talking, you've just been talking right now about this in the context of national level decisions. But it's really important to reiterate here, I think, the fact that this is a global 
solution or a global technology. Intervention, you, yeah. Intervention, that's the right word. Thank you. You inject this substance into the stratosphere, and it doesn't just stay above the United States or whatever country does it. It scatters around just like volcanic dust does, all right? So, so to do this right, and this is where things get really, really complicated, and I wonder if there ever can actually be consensus on this globally, but you would need, I would think, a global consensus on whether geoengineering should be implemented because it affects everybody. And unlike implementing a carbon tax or car, whatever it may be, this really is an active process, an active impact it has on the climate or would have. So, you know, it's hard for me to imagine a situation where you get buy-in from every single country and they say, hey, go ahead and do this because the impact is, as I understand from reading your book, pretty uniform around the world. I mean, geoengineering would, would affect temperatures pretty much equally everywhere. But whether one country thinks that's a good thing for its own interests or not, I mean, it's a can of worms, this, you know? <laughs> it, 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 it is. Okay, so how much more time do we have? Right? <laughs> so, so, uh, yes, as much right? time as you want to give us and the <laughs> listeners can, can bear. So. <laughs> okay, so 18 hours in, we'll still be. So, okay, um, there are, yes, I mean, this is now where it gets, okay, academically very interesting, right? Let's start with that. And of course, right, uh, yes. Very, very hard questions here. And, but let me just pick up on one thing you said, right? You mentioned something like, now we need global consensus. Okay. Ideally, sure. And, and, you know, I shouldn't say dismissively, sure. I mean, yes, right? This is a potential global intervention. So it's only, you know, it's only fair to allow everyone, uh, seat at the table, um, a voice, right? Okay. But again, that's not sadly, how the world actually works, right? Okay, so we don't have to go back too far in history, right? So, you know, Cold War type interactions, let's say, right? You know, sure, one country, right, elected its leaders um, and sort of presumably had sort of a democratic process leading up to some of these decisions, of course, right, the US now. Well, the rest of the world, right? Nobody asked. You know, I grew up in Austria, right? Nobody asked me, right? Or my parents or anyone in Austria how we felt about uh, the fact that there are two superpowers arming themselves, right? In this Cold War. Um, so in reality, right? No, we don't have global democratic processes leading up to decisions around stuff that does infect, uh, affect the entire globe. So here too, while ideally, of course, right? You know, let's all, let's get all 8 billion of us in a room and we, we, we sort this one out, right? And we, we vote. Well, we don't, right? That's not how we decide. And we also don't decide often globally sort of in terms of let's all get together, right? All heads of state get together. And dole this one out. I mean, yes, right? United Nations, uh, UN climate talks, and so on. Um, but the big feature, the, the most important feature here around solar geoengineering, and now we're back to this free driver uh, property, is unlike with cutting emissions, where it is about motivating individual countries to do more, and where it's about you know getting all of us to agree to do more. Solar geoengineering, for better or worse, and perhaps mostly for worse, has the sort of features where it doesn't depend on everybody agreeing, right? We don't, we don't need to wait around for everyone to get on board for us then to be able to move forward. Now, first of all, okay, who is the us, right? Who is the we in this case? Well, if it's possible, since it might be possible for you know, dozens of individual countries to go it alone without global buy-in, without the help from others. Um, now we're in this world of this, this free driver phenomenon, right? Where, again, the name of the game is not to motivate people to do more of this, but maybe to stop individual countries, to stop them from doing too much too soon, stupidly, right? From, you know, at least guiding them, right? So now the conversation is very different, right? The conversation is not about, 
let's all agree to take a careful step forward here. But maybe the conversation is along the lines of, oh, they over there seem to be doing something here on solar geoengineering. You know, let's study what's happening. Let's figure out what the heck is going on, right? And at the same time, you know, via diplomacy, via, you know, UN forum and so on and so forth, bilateral diplomacy, uh, make sure we nudge, we guide, coax um, this conversation in the right direction. Um, in many ways, quite the opposite of what's happening at, let's say, the UN climate talks, where, where yes, right, free rider phenomenon, the name of the game is to motivate more to do more on the emissions cutting front. You make a, a, another hypothetical in your book that I just wanted to talk about here. And it's an example where the European Union doesn't get behind solar geoengineering at some point in the future because Germany's Green Party, and this is completely hypothetical. <laughs> it is, uh, yes. <laughs> okay. In a hypothetical coalition government in Germany, the Green Party nixes the idea, okay? And so the question I have here is, what is the political alignment of geoengineering? Could we see significant support from the left and the right or, and opposition from both sides? Does it go along the lines of what we think about here in the United States about the traditional conservative liberal divide on dealing with with climate change <laughs> the short answer yes and yes right so uh, so in some sense okay could one conceive of of a coalition where right sort of those who um, think that climate change is really bad and we need to act right would also be motivated to want to do the most on the solar geoengineering front so in some sense Yes, right. So that's you know that's actually most of us scientists um, working on solar engineering research, right? You know, most of us came to this topic basically by first spending quite a lot of time studying climate change in the first place, right? Um, now, okay, politics. You could imagine a certain subgroup of the German Greens who want to do something about climate change, right? They hate climate change, but they hate solar engineering even more, right? Um, and then maybe there is another set of environmentalists, um, yeah, typically left of center uh, politically, um, who are very much, you know, hate climate change, hate unmitigated climate change, want to do something about it and consider solar engineering something that at least ought to be researched, ought to be looked at, right? So now you have conversations among progressives among those on the political left. Uh, and there is no immediately clear answer. There's certainly no clear answer of who is right. <laughs> right? Um, there's no, oh my God, you're right. And, uh, you know, I'm right and you're wrong. Right. Um, even though everyone would say that, right. There's no objectively right answer here, a priori. So yes, suddenly you have yet another split uh, within potentially within the environmental movement, some who would want to do more on the solar geoengineering front, and frankly, many others potentially who would not. Um, meanwhile, you know, in many ways, the US here is sort of somewhat easier here, right? Left, right, you only have two parties, um, two large parties. Um, and there, um, actually, it seems unclear at the moment what how solar geoengineering would align here, right? Uh, because you could imagine, okay, if you are interested in maintaining the status quo, right? Keep burning fossil fuels. Um, then you would say, okay, fine. And solar geoengineering is the way out, right? This is kind of like Newt Gingrich and his op-ed uh, over 10 years ago saying, found solution to climate change. You don't need to cut CO2 emissions. Okay, well, but... In saying so, you need to acknowledge that climate is a real problem in the first place and that we do have to address it. You may not want to address it by cutting CO2 emissions, which, by the way, would be a mistake, um, but um, you first need to accept that climate change is, in fact, real. Um, okay, uh, so now you have this potential for solar geoengineering to really throw open the climate conversation. Right, because suddenly you jumpstart this conversation of okay, um, if we want to have a serious conversation, 
about solar geoengineering, we first all need to agree that climate change is a real problem. And frankly, it's so bad that we do need to, in fact, consider solar geoengineering as well. Um, so yes, solar geoengineering, talk of solar geoengineering does have the potential to create some interesting new alliances on the at climate policy front writ large. I'd like to ask, when will we know if we have sufficiently enough answered the questions around the potential risks and benefits of solar geoengineering that we could actually arrive at that do it, don't do it decision? What do we really need to know? Uh, when will we know enough? This is not going to sound like the biggest cop-out answer here, but we won't know that we, right? There is no, there, there is no, okay, so here is the 20-point list of things that we need to answer. And once we've checked, you know, 18 out of those 20, we are good to go, right? Like, there is no such thing. Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a very fuzzy line, if there is even a line. Uh, in many ways, um there is never going to be enough information. There's always always more work one could do, right? In some sense, the more right, the more research we do, the more open questions we'll have, right? The the typical phenomenon, um, which then can take on a life on its own, right? Um, so no, there is no single bright line here, which of course makes this such a difficult topic, right? Like, how will we know what we don't know? How will we know that we know enough? Well, you know, we will never be in this this clear-cut category of saying, okay, you know, check the box, right? The science is done. Let's hand this over to the politicians, right? Um, that's one of the major difficulties, not just to be clear. Solar geoengineering here is not unique, right? It, it might exacerbate some of these issues. It might crystallize some of these questions, right? And it might make it very clear that this not knowing is in many ways costly, extremely costly, right? We ought to be doing more research, yes. But when will we know that we've done enough? Well, in short, we won't. And that's what makes this such an interesting topic to, to explore, both as a scientist, as a social scientist, and of course, also then vis-a-vis -vis climate energy policy. Gernot, thanks very much for talking. Thanks so much. Today's guest has been Gernot Wagner, a climate economist at New York University and author of the recently published book, Geoengineering the Gamble. Thanks for listening to this episode of Energy Policy Now. To make sure you get future episodes delivered to you, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And to keep up to date on all of the latest research and events from the Kleinman Center for Energy Policy, visit our website. Our address is kleinmanenergy.upenn.edu. Thanks for listening to Energy Policy Now, and have a great day.